Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, Chris. How are you doing, Chris? We got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll dig into the rise of sports betting and stock trading with CNBC's Melissa Lee. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with a rough month for the market. The S&P 500 fell nearly 5% in September, the worst month of the year so far. Andy, all three major indices are still up double digits for 2021. But I don't blame any investor who's just a little bit rattled after the past few weeks. Yeah, Chris, it was a it was a hard month for um, for investors, especially growth investors. We've had such a such a really nice um, rebound off the COVID um, lows from last year and this year. Like you mentioned before, um, the stocks were up. Gosh, the market was up more than twenty percent. Now, you know, it's up that that mid double digits, kind of like that fifteen percent range. Um, we're back to where we were in July, so you know, it's still it's still not not horrible. Um, you know, overall. Uh, uh, we still have seen, you know, pretty pretty tame, not much volatility into the market so much. We still haven't seen those big pullbacks, dramatic, really dramatic pullbacks, you know, north of five percent on a daily basis in long periods of time. But, but certainly, I think this is one reason why we constantly really talk to to our members and to listeners and to viewers of our shows and talking about, listen, the, the markets have been really um, calm over the last 18 months. And we don't expect that going forward. Um, we know markets historically fall Gosh, 10% every you know year or 13 months or so. This fall, 15% every couple of years, um, 20% every four years. So, so you, as as an equity investor, Chris, you really have to expect that kind of volatility. We haven't seen it. So this past kind of month is is not not um, unexpected. Um, there's still a lot of positive takes in 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 business and equities and stocks, but um, we, we have seen a pullback in the markets, and we still have markets that you know historically are at fairly high levels of, of um, valuation, especially for the large cap um, companies and especially for, for the technology companies. Yeah, I agree, agree with what Andy said. Listen, the markets can't go up forever. They have to take breathers from time to time. And we have to, uh, as long-term investors, understand that and expect it. So when it happens, we, we don't get too freaked out about it. The, the market is, as Andy said, somewhat pricey here. If, if you just want to look at a, a P.E. ratio, for an example, uh, S&P 500 P.E. ratio is around 31. Even if you look at a forward P.E. ratio, it brings it down to 22, more reasonable, but still historically high. That's a relatively high um, price-to-earnings multiple. And yes, earnings are a little bit in fluctuation right now, in flux um, as a result of COVID. But still, there's many other measures you can look at um, to see that the market is pricey. We have rising interest rates, 10-year note hovering around 1.5%. That's higher than certainly we've seen over previous years. Uh, we have inflation concerns that we're seeing actually show up in the earnings results of our companies. It's just not this innocuous, amorphous thing. It actually is impacting profitability. And, and you know, macroeconomic uh, fluctuations happen from time to time. Don't have money in the market that you need over the next three years. And if, if, if you follow that guidance, you can take a lot of the pressure off of yourself, a lot of the stress when markets get weak. 
Yeah, and have a little cash on the sideline. I think that's important um, for, for individual investors. But I will note, when you look at the, the S&P 500, that, that's generally a large cap index that is so much dominated by technology these days. When you look at like, the small cap index or even the market, the, the, the mid-cap stocks, those are far more reasonable on an index basis. So, so the market overall is, is, as Ron said, on the like pricier side, when you look at that large cap popular index like the S&P 500, but going to the small cap stock, uh, the small cap index, and some of those small cap stocks, you might be able to find some more reasonable valuations there that could be benefiting, could be more beneficial to the more cyclical plays that come with the uh, continuing reopening of the economy that, that hopefully we'll see over the next year or two. All right, let's get to some of the stock news of the week. Shares of Merck up 10% on Friday and hitting a 52-week high after the pharmaceutical giant announced promising results in a late-stage study for its COVID-19 pill. Merck says it plans to file for emergency use authorization as soon as possible. Ron, good day for Merck shareholders and good news for public health. Yes, good news for us all, and I like it a lot. Exciting COVID news. As you said, Merck and its partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics, haven't heard of them before, announced an oral antiviral medicine that they have developed significantly reduced the risk of hospitalization from COVID-19 by about 50% in a phase three study, and zero patients who received the drug in the study passed away. So obviously positive news there. Recruiting people into the study is being stopped early due to these positive results. As you said, they'll plan to submit an application for emergency youth authorization to the FDA as soon as possible. They'll also submit marketing applications to other regulatory bodies worldwide. And so this is really great news. Now, we've, we've heard of other antivirals, right? They're, they're Gilead's remdesivir is probably the one that is most talked about in the news. But Pfizer, Novartis, others have antivirals also under development. So there's a lot of great stuff on the horizon, I think, both with vaccines and antivirals. Interestingly, vaccine companies, uh, fo companies that are focused on vaccines, uh, shares are a little weak today on the fact that there is something you can take after the fact if you do get uh, COVID. But still, the combination of vaccine and antivirals, very positive for society. As you said, Merck shares 52-week high, maybe even at near all-time highs or, or close to it. Not too expensive at 14 times forward earnings with a 3.5% dividend yield. Hello. Um, so not, not too bad if you want to take a look at Merck. Back in July on this show, we told you that Zoom Video was buying Five9, a cloud-based call center operator, in an all-stock deal worth nearly $15 billion. On Thursday of this week, the deal was rejected by Five9 shareholders. And on Friday, Andy, shares of both Zoom Video and Five9 were up on this news. Is this was this just doomed from the start? Are they better off apart? <laughs> Well, the stock, the stocks, both stocks were up 12 percent or so. You know, looking out after the deal was announced, so there was some excitement around what this combination of Five Nines um, contact center, cloud-based contact center solutions, combined with 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 Zoom's um, video business, um, the, there was some excitement there. Even though it was an all-stock deal, so there was some risk in there with the stock price of Zoom. Well, clearly, Zoom stock price is down. Gosh, almost 30 percent since the deal was announced. That's pulled Five Nine stock price 
place down. There's been some concerns about um, uh, some of Zoom's um, uh, connections and business operations in China. Um, so the, the the Justice Department and the FTC have been kind of investigating that part of their business. Some of the big um, proxy advisory services like institutional shareholder services and Glass Lewis had recommended voting against the deal deal for five nine shareholders. And so I think when you add that all together, but mostly the stock price and the fact that Zoom was probably not going to raise the, the offering price for uh, five nine at that fifteen billion dollar mark, even though Zoom is very profitable and has lots of cash in the balance on their balance sheet, it looked like the deal was just kind of starting to get doomed over the last couple of weeks. And clearly, um, five nine sh- uh, stockholders um, voted against it, and then then they both both companies mutually agreed not to pursue it any longer. Shares of Bed Bath and Beyond down nearly 30 percent this week after second quarter results were much lower than expected. The company also cut guidance for the full fiscal year. And CEO Mark Tritton said supply chain problems have been pervasive. Ron, (laughs) I I want to start by offering my condolences, since you're a shareholder of Bed Bath & Beyond. How how bad is this? Tritton is someone who doesn't really pull his punches. So I know you'll recall that Bed Bath got cut up in that meme stock madness. Stock went to 53. Now we're back at 16. I will disclose that I sold most of my shares, except for 100 shares, um, when the stock um, popped as a result of the meme uh, craziness. Um, so uh, I, I still have a little piece, so I can keep an eye on it. Company has been attempting to execute a turnaround under the guidance of Mark Tritton, formerly of Target. Um, I'm a big fan, actually. I think he does great work. Uh, he he sold non-core assets. He introduced a much heavier line. Lineup of private label brands to the stores. Now, this quarter, there was a bit of a stumble on the way to the turnaround. Two main issues demand and supply. Now, I'm no economist, but I'm told that one, or one of those would be bad. If you do two at the same time, you get a stock that's down 20 or 30%, right? So, first, demand got whacked in August due to the Delta variant, which caused shopper traffic to slow, especially in big states where they are, Florida, Texas, California. Comp sales down 1%, total sales down 26%. Then the company, as you said, experienced supply chain issues and cost inflation. That hurt margins. They lost $73 million for the quarter. If we allow for some adjustments, they were slightly profitable. And then, not surprisingly, the company also lowered its guidance. Stock's interesting to me at $16, I've got to say, as a potential entry point back in. I personally have been to Bed Bath stores several times over the last couple of months. The dominance of the private label merchandise is a negative to me. That's it's all over the place, so that gives me a little bit of pause. But I'm I'm doing a little work here uh, myself. Coming up after the break, we've got another new public company, some spicy earnings, and the sexy world of house paint. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. McCormick had nice sales growth in the third quarter, but it wasn't good enough, apparently. Shares of the spice maker down 5% this week and hitting a 52-week low. Ron, am I the only one looking at this as a chance to buy shares of a solid business like McCormick at a discount? 
It could be a nice entry point here as, as a result of the fact that shares are off about 15% year-to-date this week, as you say, uh, contributing to that. I feel like I'm stealing Jason's thunder here, but since he's not here this week, I'm going to carry on and talk McCormick. Uh, results for the quarter, they actually weren't too bad. Sales up 8%, mostly driven by restaurants coming back online. Consumer segment grew too, but only by about 1%, facing tough comps when we were all home pretty much cooking um, and, and all of us not going to restaurants a year ago. Uh, the main concern from an investor focus is that the company's comments about cost pressures were a little bit um, concerning. And they're not alone. Obviously, we're seeing that across the board. Inflation hurt margins, hurt profitability. Adjusted earnings per share were still up about 5%, but things could have been much stronger if it wasn't for those pressures. The company intends to raise prices when necessary. I do think they have some ability to do so. There'll be a limit to what they can do there, but certainly there's some room, I believe. They guided sales to the high end of the range. That's interesting, but they lowered the outlook for operating income because of the pressure here on margins. So the business from a demand perspective still remains strong, which is great. To your point about the stock, 28 times not necessarily cheap, but growth could accelerate as restaurants continue to come back online. They've made some solid acquisitions like Cholula, which I use almost every day. That should add to the bottom line. So if that growth accelerates, the 28 times won't won't seem as expensive perhaps as it does. Uh, and it has a 1.7% yield, which uh, dividend investors will like. This week, Warby Parker went public via direct listing. The online eyeglasses retailer started at $40 a share and closed its first day at $54. Andy, a lot of enthusiasm for Warby Parker right out of the gate. Well, I think that direct listing was really interesting, Chris, because to do that direct listing, they didn't raise any money for the actual business. They were just basically offering their shares out there from existing shareholders, just basically adding liquidity into into that business. Um, but they didn't get any money from it, so they didn't raise any capital from it. So now you got a six billion dollar business. Um, you know, very interesting. Founded by in two thousand and ten by some Wharton students. Um, interesting. This name comes the name comes from a couple characters from a Jack Kerouac novel, which is ah. really interesting. Um, it, it does. Chris does have that as you mentioned. It's known for its direct to consumer online business, but really, it's basically half and half between online and offline, and they have 145 of those retail outlets, and I think that's what's really interesting and also a little concerning when I look forward at this stock, uh, at, at again, at $6 billion in market cap, a stock that has doubled from the private value earlier this year. Um, they do probably about you know um, uh, $400 million in sales. Um, they don't have a very large part of a very fragmented market, and they're a very small player in in in, in that large market, but they're going to have to continue to build out that store base, Chris. They're going to add 30 to 35 stores. Now, those stores are very profitable. Um, they're they're not like Apple levels on a square foot uh, profitable when you look at their sales per square foot, I should say, but still very healthy. So, they, they do generate a lot of sales per square foot, um, but they're still investing a lot back in the business, not very profitable. Um, they're not as unique as they used to be maybe a few years ago when they were selling those $95 or 100 pair of glasses online with the try-on um, apps you can use. Now more and more players are doing that. So there's a lot of good, healthy expectations baked into a stock price. I love the fact that they're trying to simplify the eyeglass buying experience. I think all three of us and four of us, when you add Rick in behind the glass, wear glasses. That whole process of buying that is really, um, I think, subpar. So I appreciate that. They have high growth ambitions, but it's definitely baked into the stock price. So you have to really, I'm pausing on this one, not acting right now, just kind of watching to see how they go along. 
Shares of Dollar Tree up more than 10% this week. The discount retailer increased its share buyback plan from $1.5 billion to $2.5 billion and said they're going to start selling some products at a price point higher than $1. You tell me, Ron, which of these two things is more responsible for the stock moving up? It's both, but I think the dollar initiative is more impactful here. So, on the heels of their Dollar Tree Plus initiative, which previously introduced higher-priced sections in small percentages of their stores, they announced they'll begin offering products at price points above $1 at Dollar Tree Plus stores. And that higher prices will allow them to offer differing, different merchandise, such as frozen meats, yum, and seasonal items, other products that cost more than a dollar. Uh, they say they're on track in 2020. 21 to five to have 500 Dollar Tree Plus stores by the end of the year. Another 1,500 are planned for fiscal 22, and at least 5,000 stores are expected by the end of fiscal 2024. So a very large growth initiative for them. And I think these higher prices were likely necessary as a result of rising supply chains and labor costs, as we're seeing across retail. Um, it puts them more in line with what Dollar General has done uh, from a price point perspective. Um, and Dollar General is, is a much larger company from a market cap perspective than Dollar Tree. Now, you said they also boosted their stock buyback program, authorizing an additional $1.505 billion in share repurchases that totals the authorization to $2.5 billion. At a market cap of $21 billion, that's 10% that they're signaling that they're going to at least attempt or be authorized to repurchase. Now, that is a meaningful number, and that can be certainly part of the movement in the stock this week. So, so it's both Dollar Tree making some interesting moves. On Tuesday, Sherwin-Williams lowered its guidance for third quarter sales. Shares down a bit as the company cited persistent problems with raw materials and said they don't expect issues in their supply chain to improve in the next few months, Andy. Yeah, Chris, it's the second time this month they've lowered the guidance, so now expecting sales guidance to be flat to down in the third quarter, and they've nicked their profit guidance, and that's really kind of impacting the forecast, and that's starting to show in some of the earnings guidance that the analysts are putting out and some of the stock price. Um, so again, they just continue, as Ron mentioned earlier in the show, continues to see these impacts in supply channel as well as raw material costs. With Sherwin-Williams, you're seeing the Hurricane Ida that that had wrecked, um, really hit heavily down in the, in the um, southern part of the United States um, are more severe for suppliers and will actually last longer. So they have those impacts as well as costs just continuing to increase across the board um, and key uh, the, the improvements they expected to see in the key resins which supply, which go into their supplies uh, to produce their paints and coating. Um, the, the, the production improvements they were expecting in September have not come out, come through, and those will be pushed out now. So, you know, here you have a stock at about $280 per share. It's a $73 billion market cap. You have a nice little dividend yield in there. Stock's up about 20% this year, a little bit ahead of the market. You know, price earnings around 30 times, Chris. So, you know, it's a very steady business, generates a lot of cash flow. They use a buyback stock, pay back that dividend. So, when you look at overall, it's still a pretty good business at a reasonable stock price. All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. After the break, CNBC host Melissa Lee on the potential and pitfalls for the new generation of stock traders. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. In 2020, money that might have gone towards trips to Las Vegas instead started pouring into sports betting apps. 
and revenue for the stock trading app Robinhood more than tripled over the previous year. The intersection of online betting, stock trading, and gaming is the focus of a new CNBC documentary, Generation Gamble. It premieres Tuesday, October 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's reported and hosted by Melissa Lee. She joins me now from New York City. Melissa, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. You've done documentaries on cybersecurity, AI, consumer goods. Was the sheer amount of money pouring into these industries the thing that got you interested in this topic, or was it something else? That was definitely part of it. I mean, hardly a day goes by on my show, Fast Money, where we don't talk about the rise of sports betting, uh, the increasing popularity of trading on apps like Robinhood and Webull, uh, crypto like Doge. And it really gets you thinking, it's not only a growing business, but the other side of it is, who are these people who are devoting the hours and the dollars to these businesses, um, the time involved in, in placing the bets or making the trades? And so I really thought this was you know, something that was going on in society that could really change our outlook going forward towards money and, and the attitude towards taking risk. And I think that's a change that that we are in the midst of right now, Chris. Let's talk about the sports betting part of this first. And I, I knew, or at least would have guessed, that a lot of money was going into sports betting because I watch sports and I've seen all the commercials. And all of the commercials are for DraftKings and FanDuel and all these different apps. But the revenue that they are getting in return, which is something you get at in the documentary, Whatever they're spending on advertising, it uh, looks like they're doing a good job of getting revenue back. Oh, I mean, <laughs> when you take a look at the sheer numbers when it comes to sports betting and iGaming, because iGaming is also a booming business, just in the first half of this year, we've surpassed the total revenue for those in the total of last year. And so this is really a growing part of, of sort of the mind share of this generation. And you go into any sports bar, Chris, or college campus, and everybody is talking about betting. I'm clearly far away from that generation, <laughs> that sort of demographic, but that is going on. And this is just sort of in the fabric of, of what this generation does. It's, it's not a big deal to place a bet. And think about, you know, for us, you know, we grew up um, remembering what it was like to, to have to wait online to to do a transaction, whether it be retail or, or whatnot. This generation, they only know transacting on their cell phone. And so the friction to use money, whether it be for trading or for betting or for spending in any way, it's zero. Uh, they just reach into their pockets and they do it. They don't have to leave their bed. They don't have to leave their dorm. They could be in a class and placing a bet. So it's it's really just, it's a generational change here. Yeah, and another thing you get at is, um, as you said, it's so easy to do. You don't, you know, we grew up at a time where if you wanted to place a bet, you had to get on a plane and fly to Vegas. You had to go to a casino. There was so much more work involved, um, and it's so much easier to do now. And the incentives that the sports betting platforms and, and iGaming platforms are throwing out there are, are ridiculous, but they seem to be working. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you can just take a look at the numbers in terms of the users and the engagement. I mean, giving away a sure bet um, for your first bet place, basically, you know, the odds will be in your favor for sure for that very first bet. It pays off because the lifetime of that, that new user 
far surpasses what that that company had to spend to get that new user in that first trade. So um, it's it's it just gives you a glimpse into how much money if you can hook that person, so to speak, with their first trade, and it it you know it checks all the boxes when it comes to the rush, the adrenaline, the money in your account. You've got them. Well, and that's one of the through lines in your documentary that connects these industries is the psychology at work here, which you know you you talk to young investors who uh, take comfort in knowing that as they're starting out as investors, they're not alone. They're part of a larger movement on Reddit. Um, but you also get at the flip side of that, which is you know you talk to a university professor who's doing one of the first studies on the connection between online trading and gambling behaviors. And it sounds like the early results aren't great. I'm glad you brought up the study because that was absolutely shocking to me. He, he um, surveyed 400 retail investors, just random retail investors, 400 of them. And he asked them if they held GameStop, AMC, or Doge. 51% said they held at least one. Um, so can you imagine if that's just a random sampling of retail traders and more than half owned one of those securities, that just tells you what the psyche is of these new traders. Um, they, they may, you know, to be sure, they may have, uh, you know, other money set aside that is more longer term, but they are more than willing, Chris, to sort of take a gamble because they can check that app 10 times a day and see that stock go up. 10 cents, a dollar, double, triple. I mean, in the <laughs> in the case of GameStop or AMC, double or triple um, over the course of a matter of days. And, and that also gets at that same adrenaline rush. We're talking about all the same sort of physiological triggers uh, that get activated when you're quote unquote winning, whether it be a sports bet or a trade. And that's what really fascinated me uh, in terms of the connection between the two. Uh, Robin Hood declined to sit for an interview for this documentary. And I'm curious if, from a business standpoint, how bright you think the future is for businesses like Robin Hood and Webull and other trading apps that gamify investing, because it really seems like the SEC is taking a long, hard look at the way they do business, which is different from how other regulators seem to be looking at the sports betting industry. I think that's a really good point. Um, I, I think that the demand for zero-cost trading is always going to be there, clearly. People want to trade, and I think that not having to pay $9.99 or $7.99 or whatever it is, that that makes it all that much more likely that your trade is going to, to pay off. People have just been conditioned to think that trading should be free, and particularly this generation. I don't think they'll ever go back to, to paying for something. But in terms of the, the business model, I mean, the core of the business model for Robinhood um, in particular is payment for order flow. They receive payment uh, for order flow, for sending those those retail orders to market makers like a Citadel or a Virtu. Most of their revenue comes from payment for order flow. That's what the SEC is going to take a look at. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's funny, I'm working on another documentary that deals with the, the AMC phenomenon, and there's a lot of overlap between the two. Um, but when it comes to these younger traders, they they want to take a look at the structure of Wall Street and if they are being taken advantage of. And so while many traders use Robinhood, there are 
a significant number who question whether or not there is a conflict of interest, whether or not they are being treated in the best way possible when it comes to getting the best price for their trade, um, or if Robinhood has a conflict of interest, sending it to the firm that will pay them the most, um, as opposed to the firm that will execute the trade for the retail investor um, in the best way possible. Um, so I think it's sort of a, a double-edged sword for Robinhood. I think they've certainly changed the game when it comes to the overall industry. I mean, think of how many other brokers now offer zero-cost trading. Um, I don't think that we're going to go back. But I do think that the retail investor is smarter and they ask questions. So I wouldn't be surprised if eventually there's some change involved in the business model of Robinhood and, and some of the other brokers. I was going to ask you where you think all of this is going, but in the documentary, you literally go to one of the places where this is going. You go into the metaverse. You you go to a place called Decentraland, and you play blackjack in a virtual casino like something out of Ready Player One. I mean, that's sort of the extrapolation of all this. If if things aren't real, if this generation is comfortable. Uh, with operating in sort of this virtual world where money is frictionless, um, then why not have an avatar that you can dress up in virtual clothes that you buy for significant sums of cryptocurrency and operate there um, and gamble there and bet there? That's sort of the next step. Um, money is frictionless. Um, operating in a virtual world is a, is a lot easier <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we were talking about having to go to a casino physically, a drive to a casino to place a bet. This is one step beyond. You don't even have to get dressed. You don't have to do anything. You could stay in your bed and literally dress your avatar and go and place a bet. And all of these companies, all of these companies are looking at operating in the metaverse. This is just the next step to all of this. Every weekday at 5 p.m., she is the host of CNBC's Fast Money. But when she's not doing that, she's working on things like Generation Gamble. The new documentary premieres Tuesday, October 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Investors are not going to want to miss it. Melissa, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Chris. A pleasure. When you're hot, you're hot. Get ready to take some notes, because coming up after the break, Andy Cross and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Guys, before we get to radar stocks, I just wanted to touch on two stories that are related, because this was a really good week for anyone who's looking forward to the inevitable rise of the machines. <laughs> now, first, the California DMV approved autonomous vehicle deployment permits for Waymo, which is owned by Alphabet, and Cruise, which is owned by General Motors. They still need approval from the California Public Utilities Commission, but these companies are now 
one step closer to offering driverless ride-sharing services. Ron, <laughs> are, 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 you, are you getting in one of these? Or if you live in California, or you're like, no, I'd like a human person driving my Uber or Lyft. Well, and, and are you paying for it? That's a big question, too. Are you paying for it? Chris, you used the word exciting uh, at the lead-in, and I would replace that with nervous. Very, very nervous. Um, I'm not an early adopter of things that could cause severe harm. Um, it's really interesting. It's it's, it's going to be the future. Um, the, this allows them, as Andy said, to charge a fee, receive compensation for the, the autonomous services they'll offer to the public, ride-hailing being one of the bigger ones. Um, we're still in the infancy here. It's going to take some time. They're going to have to develop a track record. I'm okay with Domino's delivering pizzas in Ann Arbor this way, but I'm not sure if I'm getting in a car. Andy, uh, you just raise an interesting point. You know, obviously they want to charge for this. Any chance, particularly if it's Waymo, which is backed by Alphabet, which has enormous piles of money, any chance that once they finally get approval for this, they just for a few months say, hey, we're just going to offer this for free just to get people like Ron more comfortable with this idea? <laughs> yeah, I mean, very very much maybe. I mean, I think that just to, just to start to build, because I think there will be a lot of nervousness from the consumer side. I will say the cruise permission is for the, you can, the vehicles are approved to operate between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., so I'm usually asleep by then, so I won't be <laughs> hopping or paying for a cruise vehicle. Uh, the Waymo one's authorized to go up to 65 miles per hour at certain parts of San Francisco and San Mateo counties. So that's really interesting. The cruise one's up to 30 miles an hour um, and operate in light fog and light rain. Um, so it will be interesting to see what they do with this, how much demand they get. Is there interest to be able to pay to go this to, to go the certain mileage? And then certainly what does Waymo do? They're building on their lead with, uh, with uh, so many miles in California and cruise this year. That's dropped a lot this year with a lot of the testing um, in 2020 because of the COVID pandemic, but lots of continued testing and, um, and consumer uh, interest to, to determine. So, Chris, you're saying I could potentially save tens of dollars in order to risk my life? <laughs> you sold me. <laughs> also this week, Amazon unveiled Astro, a robot you can have in your home for only $1,000. Astro is the size of a small dog, moves around on three wheels, and has a 10-inch screen. It can play music, TV shows. It also has a camera that can be used for home security and video chat. Ron, obviously, this is version 1.0. I, among my thoughts on this is I'm a little surprised it's Amazon with this and not Apple or Google. Well, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't think of it that way. I, I love stuff like this um, in general, and I eventually, at some point, will be a consumer. I, I think when it does a little bit more. For example, my wife said, oh, that's interesting. It could bring you a, a, a bottle of water from the fridge. I'm like, well, not really. It doesn't have hands. Somebody would have to be there, put it in the little pouch, and then it could recognize your face, and it will be able to map your house. I mean, pretty cool stuff, right? It'll have, obviously, an Alexa built in. Um, and this is going to be the future, for sure. We're going to have many robots in our house. We're just we're early on here, and I'm sure you'll see competitors like from Alphabet, like from Apple, as you said. Um, so we'll have our choice of of thousand dollar. Uh, little mini robots to choose from. The, fu the future is here, Chris. It's a little, little too much Wally -E looking for me. It is interesting <laughs> that they, you know, it continues Amazon. They announced a whole bunch of different stuff with like cheaper thermostats and more rings, different echoes. So it really does just represent Amazon's desire to 
start to serve what's going on inside your house, the whole ring security system that they're kind of building out. Um, so more and more evidence that Amazon is really pushing into places where consumers are sitting to be able to order more stuff, whether it's through Alexa or through their uh, computers or, or tablets or iPhones. By the way, Amazon denied that the device is named after Astro, the dog in the animated <laughs> show The Jetsons. And it's like, come on, we all know you named it after the dog. The, the, the review I read said, this is no Rosie the Robot. We're still <laughs> exactly. early stages here. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Rick Engdahl, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Rick, I am revisiting Editas, E-D-I-T, a stock that I've talked about many times before. I own it as part of my personal nine-stock biotech basket. They're an early-stage gene therapy company focused on the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology. Now, the reason I'm revisiting it is that earlier in the week, they released initial clinical data from an ongoing trial that's focused on treating blindness due to a rare disorder of the retina. Following release of that data, the stock fell 20%. But <laughs> that drop seems like an overreaction to me. The trial did show the treatment was effective for patients that received a medium dose. I'm scratching my head a little bit about the stock reaction here. Prior to the release, the shares had doubled since May. So this is either a buy on the rumor, sell on the news situation, or there's something in the data that I'm just not understanding right now. I need to dig in more to determine if I stay put or maybe even buy more. Rick, question about Editas? So gene therapy. Looks very promising, uh, looking into the future. So my question is, am I going to be able to live forever, or only my kids? Interesting. Um, I think in your lifetime, you will see this used to treat certain diseases. It won't be widely adopted quite yet, but for our kids, that could be really interesting. Andy Cross, what are you looking at? Pubmatica, Rick and Chris, P-U-B-M, a very small cap stock, $1.3 billion, $25 stock price, um, $100 million of cash in the balance sheet, offers a digital sell-side ad tech platform that more than 1,200 independent publishers and app developers use. So they use those, they use the technology to basically encourage um, clients, ad clients, and other brands to be able to advertise. They serve 46 trillion ad impressions last year. They handle one trillion requests per day. It's really profitable for a small company. Um, they have growth rates of estimating to be 38 to 40% this year. They had a wonderful Q2, really benefiting from the push to be omni-channel, um, connected TV, Rick. So when you think about using all your devices and that's supported by advertising, Pubmatica is a small cap growth company that's really innovative in building out that business. I really like it. Rick, question about Pubmatic? Oh, I'm a little disappointed. I thought Pubmatic was going to be some kind of robot that brought me a beer. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good business to have, though. But do we really need another online advertising platform? Come on. I think we do. It's a big, average, huge space, and they need a lot of innovation to be able to support those businesses. What do you want to add to your watch list, Rick? I think I want my kids to live forever. We'll go with that one. Nice. All right. Andy Cross, Ron Gross, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey.